The title of my sermon is Nothing But the Blood. We sing about that this morning. The big idea, only through sacrifice may sinners enjoy the presence of the Lord. Amen? Only through sacrifice may sinners enjoy the presence of the Lord. I remember growing up as a young boy, and and I know this is true of all young boys, when you grow up, you have heroes, right? And for children, these tend to be people that aren't really alive. I mean, superheroes, right? These are fictitious characters. I I think of Superman and Spider-Man, and young children, young boys especially, are heard running around the house with a cape on, or, you know, those sound effects. I mean, every young boy knows what this is. Who am I right now? Spider-Man, right? The kids, you heard the boys, right? So it's when you're running around and, and we, we seek to imitate them again through uh, sound effects, uh, through capes, whatever it is. When you're young, you have heroes. You try to imitate those heroes, but unfortunately, it never moves beyond that. We can't actually be like them, let alone meet them. I've said this a lot, whenever you're studying the Bible, it's, it's easy, especially in books like Exodus or even 1 Samuel, to misunderstand or misidentify the true hero in the text. You know, if you read the Exodus, you might think, oh, Moses is the hero, or 1 Samuel, it's King David. No, the, the hero of Scripture from beginning to end is the Lord. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Amen? And those who trust And Jesus get to know him and be known by him. And by the Spirit of God, we can actually be like him. Amen? I mean, that's incredible. So the hero of the Bible, we can know him and be known by him and by the Holy Spirit that dwells inside the people of God, we can actually be like him. We can be holy. We can live like Jesus. The Lord has made a way. Through Christ's sacrifice and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can know Jesus. We can become like Jesus. We can enjoy a relationship with our Holy Savior and live like our Holy Savior, all for the glory of God and for our joy. What do we learn in Exodus 29? There's a lot there, but what do we learn? The key word, and if you are listening carefully, I hope you heard it multiple times, the key word in Exodus 29 is the verb to consecrate. What does the word to consecrate, the verb consecrate mean, and how is it being used? It's the Hebrew verb, you ready for this? Kavash. Kavash. It means, to consecrate means to put something in a state of holiness, to consecrate, to dedicate. Here the verb in our passage is being used in the context of a formal ceremony whereby Aaron and his sons are being ordained or recognized as what? As priests. The service of consecration marked them out as set apart to the service of the Lord where? In the in the tabernacle. Again, to consecrate means to set apart as holy, to dedicate to divine service. Maybe that's a better definition, to dedicate to divine service. This, for the priest, was a massive responsibility and a humongous privilege. And as we saw last week, if you were here last week, we walked through Exodus 28. The priests were God's holy solution for an unholy 
people to dwell in the presence of a holy God. I probably said that 15 times last week. Now, why was this so important? Why was this so important? Because God is holy and we are? We're not. We are naturally unholy. Therefore, God's people need a holy representative, a holy mediator. And this was symbolized last week by the priest's holy clothes, his holy garments. Now, in the next chapter, in 29, which we read a large portion of, we see that the problem of unholiness is addressed by sacrifice. Multiple sacrifices are made on behalf of the priest to prepare him to be in the Lord's presence as a holy representative for God's people. Now, this is helpful, okay? There is a major cause and effect relationship seen in Exodus 29. What's a cause and effect relationship? Something happens and then something results from that happening, right? There's an action and a consequence. So the effect will get there. The cause takes up most of our chapter. So the cause is Exodus 29, 1-44. to That's the first section. The effect is the last two verses in our passage. So again, the cause. The cause is summarized in Exodus 29, verse 44. Here's the cause. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate. I will dedicate to divine service. I will set apart. I will make them holy. That's what consecrate means. So I will consecrate the tabernacle, right? The tent of meeting, the altar where sacrifices happen. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate, the Lord says, to serve me as priest. That's the cause. What's the effect? What's the effect of that? That's seen in Exodus 29, 45 and 46, the last two verses. This is good. I will dwell. I will dwell among the people. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What does this amount to, this effect? Sacrifice, that's the cause, right? Consecration through sacrifice. The sacrifice of an animal or animals in place of God's people. A substitute. Something dies in place of others. That is the cause. Sacrifice. What is the effect? Sacrifice results in the presence of God and the knowledge of God. A relational knowledge. Not until there is sacrifice can God dwell among His people and can His people know Him. Amen? There's got to be sacrifice. There's got to be death. And God doesn't just mean to dwell among His people, but to dwell among them relationally. And this only through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood. Paul gets at this at Romans 5.1. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been perfectly accomplished through the cross of Christ. If you wish to know the Lord relationally to be in His presence, you have to accept the what? The sacrifice. Who was sacrificed in our place so that we could enjoy a relationship, so that we could know God, so that we could be in His presence and have peace with God? 
Jesus. This has been perfectly accomplished through the cross of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of sinners. Paul makes the point that only through the sacrifice of Jesus can sinners have relational right standing with God. The Lord provides a sacrifice, a substitute, in order that an unholy people might relationally enjoy His holy presence. And all God's people said, Amen. In order for there to be peace between a holy God and an unholy people, there must be, and this is so good, this is Exodus 28 and 29, we're going to bring them together now. In order for there to be peace, a relationship between a holy God and an unholy people, what have we seen? There has to be both a holy mediator and a holy sacrifice. And this is the paradox of the gospel, because Jesus is both the perfect high priest, our perfect mediator, and the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. That's incredible. What Exodus 28 and 29 point to is found in who? Who is the perfect high priest, the mediator, who stands in the gap between an unholy people and a holy God? And who is the one who was slain so that we could have a relationship with God, have our sins forgiven? Who is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. What does the Bible say? Let's go to the Bible for support here. So let's focus first. Again, two things. Two things. Exodus 28 points to a holy mediator. Who is the perfect holy mediator, our perfect high priest that brings us into God's presence? He is he's Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Go to verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Let us then draw with confidence... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Who were those that made intercession? Priest. Who's the perfect high priest? Jesus. Okay, so... Jesus, according to Exodus 28 and 29, again, these are pointers, right? They point to the perfect high priest, Jesus. But not just the perfect high priest, but the perfect sacrifice. So Jesus is our holy sacrifice. That's John 1.29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What happened to lambs in this cultural context? They were slaughtered in place of God's people. What is John saying? This is the one who's going to make a way for sinners like us. And then 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you get nothing else today, get that. Jesus is both our perfect high priest and our perfect sacrifice. Amen? Let me address two things this morning from our passage. That was kind of, let's step back, let's summarize. What do we learn from Exodus 28 and 29? I think we see that now. He's our perfect high priest, Jesus. He is the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the Sacrifice without blemish, Jesus, who makes a way. But two more things I want to talk about this morning from our text. Number one is the importance 
of holiness for God's ministers. That's point number one, the importance of holiness for God's ministers. Now, even though, and I I spoke on this last week, even though we who are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, even though we who trust in Jesus, we enjoy the priesthood of all believers, this does not negate the role of the pastor or the elder in the church today. And I use those interchangeably because the Bible does, right? Pastor and elder, overseer, shepherd. This section, so what I just read or what Pastor Paul read and what we're going to look at in more detail, Exodus 29, this section from Exodus functions as a nice comparable to the calling of the pastor today And more specifically, God's call that his pastors, the pastors he has put over his church, be holy and set apart. Furthermore, even though, this is important, even though the pastor is still a sheep, I'm a sheep, Dave's a sheep, Aaron, you're a sheep, Paul, you're a sheep, even though pastors are still sheep under the care of the good shepherd, the pastor or pastors are tasked with greater responsibility. And they're held to a higher standard. I think all of us would agree with that from Scripture, right? Amen? His holiness, the pastor's holiness, is paramount to the effectiveness of his ministry. Um, Most of my heroes are dead. Most of the men that I really enjoy reading, they've gone to be with the Lord. There's a, a 19th century Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. He said this years ago famously, and it has stuck with me for the last 10 years of ministry. This is what he said, and I want you to hear it. I'm not going to do a Scottish accent, but I could. This is what he said. The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Again, this has stayed with me for the past 10 years. I used to have it... In my old office, you know, we had one of those offices and, and I had a desk that had bookshelves right in front of me where I would study and I had it taped up there. The church's greatest need is my personal holiness. My consecration and the consecration of the, elder, the other elders, uh, Paul, Aaron, Dave, myself, my consecration, their consecration, my set-apartness, our set-apartness, Yes, it's for the glory of God, but it's also for your benefit. It is for your benefit. So right now, I think, brothers, we've read maybe half a dozen books together since I've been here, close to that. So we we meet every week, the pastors and I do. We meet and we pray together, and we hold each other accountable. And we ask each other every week, how's your walk with the Lord? How's your time in the Word? How's your prayer life? How's personal holiness? We hold each other accountable. We, we want to make sure that we're spurring each other on, that we're following Jesus together well, that we're exemplifying the gospel before the church together well. And right now, the book we're reading is, again, by another dead guy that I really like, Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. He was a Puritan. The first chapter is heavy, <laughs> and it deals with Paul's charge to the pastors in Ephesus. This is from Acts 20. It's one of the sermons I preached when I came here in view of a call. And he says to these elders, Paul does, take heed unto yourselves. What does that mean, take heed? 
It means pastors must pay close attention to themselves. They must watch their lives. Pastors must carefully watch their lives. They must prioritize personal holiness. And then what Baxter does, he gives eight reasons for this call. And I want to share three of them with you. And again, Baxter is writing to who? Who's he writing to? Pastors. He's writing to pastors. And listen to these reasons. Reason five, reason six, and reason eight. Reason five, he says, take heed unto yourselves. Pastors, watch yourselves. Watch your lives carefully. Why? Here's the first reason I wanted to share. Because there are many eyes on you. And many will observe your fails or your falls. That's the first reason. There are many eyes on you. And many will observe your falls. Reason six, he says, take heed unto yourselves. Watch your lives carefully. For your sins have more heinous aggravations than other men's. Your sins have more hypocrisy in them than other men's because you have spoken against those very sins. I asked Haley, and I've shared this with the pastors, I asked my wife at least once a quarter, Haley, am I the same man behind the pulpit as I am at home? Meaning, am I practicing at home what I'm preaching to God's people? And the moment she says no, we need to have a meeting, guys. Thankfully, up to this point, she has said yes. Praise God for that. But keep asking me what she says. Reason eight, take heed unto yourselves. Again, Baxter is speaking to pastors. He's saying, pastors, watch your lives carefully. Why? For the souls of your hearers and the success of all your labors very much depend on it. If the work of the Lord is not soundly done upon your own hearts, how can you expect that He should bless your labors for the fulfilling of it in others? Listen, we don't need, we don't need an earthly priest to represent us before God. Jesus does that for us as our perfect high priest. Amen? Furthermore, we don't, listen, we don't need a special class of priest to interpret God's Word for us. For if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. Amen? You have the Spirit. And yet, and yet, the Lord does provide shepherds to guide and to lead His flock in the Word and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This is a holy calling. And it demands what? holiness on the part of the pastor. So, since I've been here, I've been praying 1 Timothy 4.16 every day. Every day for myself and for my fellow pastors. And this is what it says. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. Listen to what Paul says. And I would ask you to pray this for us as well. If you're a member of Celtics, will you pray this for your pastors, what does Paul say to Timothy? Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. <laughs> now, who's familiar with the qualifications of pastors, elders, in the pastoral epistles? Right. So, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, what do they deal with? What do they deal with primarily? The qualifications of the elder, the pastor, the overseer, the shepherd, they speak to the importance 
of the pastor's moral integrity, his set-apartness, his holiness. Now, yes, we would say all these things should describe all believers, right? Amen? Should we all be gentle? I mean, should we all be holy? Yes! Yes! So what's Paul doing? Yes, these things should describe all believers, maybe minus, of course, being able to rightfully handle the word, and yet pastors should exemplify these things. It's true? Pastors should exemplify these things. This verse in James 3.1, I learned 25 years ago, and it has haunted me ever since in a good way. It just When I say it haunted me, it stays with me. It, it keeps me up at night. I think about it all the time. And what does James say? Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly than others. Now, the Old Testament priests were a living parable of the importance of holiness for God's people. Think of the Old Testament priests as a living parable of the importance of holiness for God's people. In a similar way, pastors in a church are to exemplify holiness for God's people saying, and I'm going to say it right now, follow me, follow us as we follow Jesus. This point, I'm not just saying this because it sounds good. This is hard, right? I mean, this is heavy for pastors, but God's word says it, so we should, we should look for it, we should obey it. We should come under it together. This point is emphasized in Hebrews 13, verse 7. The writer of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their life. Watch them and imitate their faith. You know, the, the church has often been compared to a gym. Okay, so maybe many of you like me, you have these uh, grandiose New Year's resolutions. I'm going to be in the gym every day, eight days a week. And maybe you would agree or confess, I've never seen the inside of a gym. That's okay. But I think most of us know what a gym is. Inside a gym, there's what? There's equipment. What's the purpose of a gym? To work out, to get stronger, maybe to, to lose weight, to, to be fit, to get in shape, right? To train. So in a gym, what, what makes a gym a good gym? Well, again, they have the equipment, they have the things you need to grow, to get stronger, but they also have instructors. And what makes a good instructor? Not someone who simply says, hey, go do that exercise, but they model it. They show you what it looks like. Not, hey, I want you to do this exercise this many times. Hey, watch me. I'm going to show you the proper form. I'm going to show you how to do it step by step. So they don't just instruct, they exemplify. And that's the role of the pastor. The pastor, a good pastor, is called to do what? Not just instruct, but to exemplify, to model. And all God's people said, amen. Now the weight of this calling is seen in Hebrews 13, 17. Now again, I, I, I read the quote last week about the priest, right? When, when the priest did their job, the nation of Israel was blessed. When they didn't do their job, the nation was cursed. And so that was a heavy calling. It was a heavy calling. We're going to see more of that this morning. But the weight of the calling for the pastor is seen in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. The writer says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Here it is. 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Aaron and Dave and Paul and myself are called to keep watch over your souls, but we will have to give an account to the Lord for how we do. Amen? That's heavy. (laughs) I feel that all the time. And I hope you, church, feel the weight of the second half. What is the second half of verse 17? The writer of Hebrews states, And let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Let the pastors care for you with joy. Let it be a joyful enterprise, a joyful service, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, in every church, in every church, there will inevitably be members that cause their pastors to what? To groan. If that's you, stop. It's of no advantage to you Let us shepherd you with joy. I have a dear pastor brother, 75 years old, one of the godly, you know, the time that I had with Pastor Jerry, whenever I spent time with Jerry, I thought of Pastor Tim from Washington. Just a godly man. A brilliant man. A godly man. Pastor Tim pastored for 50 years, and he was a good friend of mine. He planted a church. He cared for God's people. He had a doctorate. He was a scholar. But he was a gentle man. He was a wise leader, and he was a wonderful teacher. And everybody loved Pastor Tim. But if you ask Pastor Tim about his first pastorate, he would say it was a nightmare. He pastored a small church in Oregon. It was one of those churches that likes to chew up and spit out pastors every two years. And he stayed there for seven. And he left with scars. And he groaned. It wasn't joy-filled. It was a groaning season. He had... Sheep bite marks all over his body, if that makes sense. Pastor Aaron put this on Facebook this morning, and I know some of you don't have Facebook or don't check it. That's, that's great, fine. But I, I want to recommend a book, and it's called The Book Your Pastor Wishes You Would Read But Is Too Embarrassed to Ask. And we have copies in the book nook. It's by Christopher Ashe. I remember Mark Dever doing a podcast, and he mentioned that book, and it, it's really helpful, really good. At our church in Washington, we gave it to all our home group leaders, and then we asked them to kind of uh, pass them out to their, those in their home groups, and eventually most of the people did read it, and it was really helpful. Just some, uh, some application here for the body. Number one, pray for your pastor's holiness. Pray for your pastor's holiness, that they would be consecrated and set apart to the Lord and his word. Shame on you if you don't pray for your pastors. I, I mean that. I mean, I mean come on. That, I pray for our pastors. Guys, pray for your pastors. Amen? Pray that they be holy and consecrated as unto the Lord. We love you guys. Number two, expect your pastor's holiness. Expect it. Don't be surprised if you see it, but expect it. Expect your pastors to be holy and set apart. And number three, and I say this unabashedly, follow their example. We're not perfect. But we should exemplify these things. Amen? So follow your pastors as they follow Jesus. Again, we must be careful, and I think I have been, but we must be careful in making the distinction between the Levitical priests and New Covenant elders, pastors, overseers. Pastors do not bring you into the presence of the Lord. That is the role of Jesus, our shepherd king. Amen? 
However, pastors do serve you by giving you the word. And pastors do serve you by regularly bringing you before the Lord in prayer. And lastly, pastors serve you by serving as examples of holiness. Point number two, the necessity of sacrifice for holiness. There is no holiness without what? Without sacrifice. There is no holiness without what? Without sacrifice. There is no entrance into God's presence, which is the goal, right? There is no entrance entrance into God's presence without what? Sacrifice. And as we saw last week, there's no entrance into God's presence without a holy representative, a holy mediator, a holy priest. What grace that the Lord provides both of these things for his people, both a holy mediator and a holy sacrifice. And who is that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Notice, this is really helpful. Notice the movement between Exodus 28 and Exodus 29. So in Exodus 28, what do we see? The guilt of the people is transferred to the priests. So that's step one. In Exodus 28, the guilt of the people, the people of Israel is transferred to who? The priests. We see that in Exodus 28, 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt. Aaron, the high priest, should bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts, it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And then, here's the movement. So again, chapter 28, what do we see? The guilt of the people is transferred to who? The priest. But then in the next chapter, the guilt of the priest is transferred to the what? The animals. And then what happens to the animals? They die. They die. As Tim Chester notes, the sin, as it were, reaches a dead end. And the end is death. It's death. Let's talk about the whole process of the consecration of the priest. This is really interesting, by the way. First, there was the washing of the priest. Then there was the putting on of the clothes, the priestly garments. Next, there was a series of sacrifices. And finally, the climax, there was a special meal. So ceremonial washing, the putting on of clothes, multiple sacrifices, and then a meal. And the whole process was repeated over seven days. And I want to take a quick moment to address each part of the process. First, the washing. They were washed with water. This symbolized cleansing from defilement. Only after the priests were washed would they then be clothed in holy garments. That's important to remember. Second, there was a series of sacrifices or offerings to the Lord. These included sin offerings, burnt offerings, and food offerings. But I want you to notice the repeated phrase. Did you catch the repeated phrase when Paul read verses 10, verse 15, and verse 19? Every time there's a sacrifice, every time there's the death of an animal, we see this same phrase. Are you ready? Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull or the ram. 
the priest is to lay his hands on the head of the animal. What did this symbolize? As we saw earlier, it symbolized the transfer of sin and guilt to the animal, the sin bearer. Who's sinning guilt? Who's sinning guilt? The guilt of the priests and the guilt of the people. And unholy people need a sacrifice in order to be holy and fit for the presence of the Lord. And then what happened to the animal? What happened next? It was what? It was killed. It was killed. The command to kill the animal immediately followed the command for the priest to lay their hands on the animal's head. What did this teach us? The wages of sin is what? As soon as that sin or guilt and guilt is transferred to the animal, what has to happen to the animal? It's killed. Sin deserves and demands what? Death. Oh, but the gracious and generous provision of the Lord. He provides an a holy substitute for an unholy people. Amen? Because who deserves sin? I'm sorry, who deserves death? Who deserves to be destroyed? We do. And yet God in His grace provided a substitute, a holy substitute for an unholy people. Now, i gotta, I got to talk about this, even though we didn't read it. If you've read the chapter, this is really strange, but it's really cool. What about the placement of the blood from the second ram on the tip of the right ear. You recall that? The tip of the right ear, the thumb of the right hand, and the big toe of the right foot of the priest. It appears strange, but it's not without purpose. So what's the purpose? Three different parts were being consecrated or set apart for the Lord's service. Now what did they stand for? Walt Kaiser, a brilliant Old Testament scholar, he writes, consecrating the lobes of the right ear was to consecrate the organ that hears the Word of God. Right? He goes on. Next, blood was applied to the thumbs of their right hands, organs by which the mediatorial work of the priest was performed on behalf of the people. Right? They're working with their hands. So they need to consecrate their hands. Then Aaron and his sons were to apply the blood to the big toe of their right foot so that the sanctified walk of the priest would be an example to the people. And of course, later the blood was mixed with the anointing oil and sprinkled on the priest. They're they're covered in blood. They're sprinkled with blood, which symbolized the full consecration of the priest. And then we have the meal. Oh, you're thinking meal sounds good right now, but listen, don't be distracted by Texas Roadhouse right now. Please, if the rolls are calling your name, tell them to shut up. Don't miss this. This is so good. So again, what do we see? There's the washing, there's the putting on of the clothes, there's the sacrifice of the animals, and then there's the, the meal. This was a communion meal between the Lord and his priests. What this symbolized was the establishment of fellowship between God and man through sacrifice. Again, fellowship is the goal of sacrifice. And not only were the priests set apart to serve the Lord on behalf of His people, but the place itself, the tabernacle and the altar for burnt offerings, had to be consecrated. Everything had to be consecrated with blood. 
in order for an unholy people to dwell in the presence of a holy God. Again, what we're seeing is the necessity of the sacrifice for what? The holiness of God's people and for entrance into God's presence. If you wish to be holy and if you wish to be in the presence of a holy God, there must be what? There must be sacrifice. An unholy people needs a holy sacrifice in order to be in the presence of a holy God. Everything had to be made holy. The priests, the people, the place before a holy God would dwell among them. Without sacrifice, there was no hope for a holy God to dwell amidst an unholy people. Man, I wish I could just preach on this one verse. Exodus 29, 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. (laughs) The sanctification of God's sacred space meant the revelation of His glory, His relational presence. Those who have trusted... So again, we're seeing these two ideas brought together, holiness and glory. Those who have trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus will be privy to what? What will they see for all eternity? The glory of God. They will see the glorious face of the Savior. They'll see Him face to face, and they will enjoy eternal fellowship with the King. And all of this stresses a very important point. The worship of God is a very serious thing. It's not something that we're to enter into lightly. A holy God demands our what? Our holiness. I made the point last week, and I hope you heard it, that the coming of Jesus did not lessen God's holiness. If anything, it augmented God's holiness by bringing it into sharper focus. I'm thankful that Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice. And yet the Lord is still what? He's still holy. We must recognize His holiness whenever we gather with His people for worship. Again, have we lost our awe and wonder toward the Lord? Let's go back to Genesis 2. Last week, we traced the significance of God clothing his people from Genesis to Revelation. And obviously, we started with Adam and Eve, right? And in Genesis 3, God clothes Adam and Eve with garments of what? The skins of animals. Why does God clothe Adam and Eve? Well, you could say because they were naked. Well, they were. So, yeah, of course, there's a practical purpose, but it's more than that. It was to cover their shame and their guilt. Again, in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed, what had to happen? An animal had to to die. There had to be a sacrifice. What we see in Exodus 28 to 29 is that the provision of holy clothes and a holy sacrifice is so that the priest may serve the Lord without any sense of guilt or or shame. The sacrifice in the provision of holy clothes was meant to remove their guilt, enabling the priest to stand in the holy presence of a holy God. In order for the priest to stand in the presence of God on behalf of the unholy people, they needed a sacrifice, a substitute, so that they too could be holy. And this is so good. What is the result of the sacrifice? What do we learn in our passage? Four things. Verse 41, because of the sacrifice, God eats with his people. Number two, because of the sacrifice, God speaks with his people. 
Number three, because of the sacrifice, God meets with his people. And number four, because of the sacrifice, God dwells with his people. God means to dwell among his people. He rescues us for that reason. Amen? He rescues us to be with him. But because of our sinfulness, and because of their sinfulness, sin must be dealt with in order for a holy God to dwell amidst an unholy people. Only through sacrifice may sinners enjoy the presence of a holy God. Now we've got to end with this question. How? How does Exodus 29 point to Christ in the gospel? Do you realize that in verses 31 to 33 we have a miniature of the gospel? Did you catch it in verses 31 to 33? What allows the priest to share a meal with God? This is the greatest honor to fellowship with God in His presence to have a meal. Communion. What allowed that? Not just anybody can do that. Amen? What allowed that? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Their sins had to be atoned for, punished, because God has to punish sin. They were made holy through sacrifice. What brings us into the presence of God, enabling us to enjoy relational fellowship with God? The sacrifice of Jesus in our place. What Exodus 29 declares Jesus has fulfilled. Amen? Recall the cause and effect relationship we started with. Through sacrifice, we enjoy fellowship with God. And if this is old news to you, wake up. Every time you hear of the sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of sinners, you should be filled with awe and joy and wonder and hope. Amen? And confidence and assurance, not in yourself, but in Christ and what he's done. What have you done with the sacrifice of Jesus? And that brings us to the last question. What does Exodus 29 mean for the church? What do we do with this church? It's interesting that Paul, in Romans 12.1, brings these two ideas together, the idea of holiness and sacrifice. You know what I'm talking about? What we've been talking about, Paul summarizes in one verse in Romans 12. This is what he says, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, brothers. He's writing, and again, oh, because of time, He's saying, hey, chapters 1 to 11, here's the gospel. Here's the good news. I just unpacked it for you. Now what do you do? Here is the proper response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of the gospel, I appeal to you, I urge you, I beg you. That's what the verb means in Greek. By the mercies of God, there's the gospel, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is your spiritual, or the Greek logikos, your logical worship, your reasonable worship. It makes sense that in light of Christ's sacrifice, we would give our lives to him. Amen? We would offer ourselves to him. As the Old Testament sacrifice was to be set apart to the Lord, and pleasing to the Lord, so too the follower of Jesus is to be wholly set apart to the Lord, and pleasing to the Lord through a life of holiness. Amen? Don't miss that. This is what Jesus prays for us, church. I taught on this a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night Bible study. John 17, 16 to 19, Jesus prays, they are not of the world, talking about his followers. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. 
If you've sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be consecrated in truth. This is what the Spirit and the Son do. The Son, Jesus, makes us positionally holy or righteous before God. And the Spirit sanctifies us, helping us to become more and more like the Son of God. Amen? The point is this. Holiness is only found in Jesus. Holiness is only found in Jesus. And lastly, when we take the Lord's Supper together, it tangibly symbolizes the fellowship we now have and enjoy with God through sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, back in 2005, a massive hurricane, Katrina, hit New Orleans. It was horrendous. Countless people lost their lives, homes were destroyed, families were displaced. And FEMA came in and provided trailers. These were temporary homes for families. And it wasn't until 2012, almost seven years later, that the last trailer was hauled off and taken away because now everyone had a permanent home. And I want to liken that to what we're seeing here. I mean, God gives us in his word these temporary measures, the tabernacle and the sacrificial system in these priests, but these were temporary. They, they point to something greater, and I hope I've made that case this morning. Exodus 28 and Exodus 29, yes, they're glorious, but they point to the perfect high priest in the perfect holy sacrifice, in the perfect home that we will share with God in heaven. Amen? Jesus has come. The fulfillment of promise. Trust Him. Love Him. Follow Him. Be holy because He is holy. So let's pray. Let's pray and give thanks for God's gracious provision of a perfectly holy priest, a perfectly holy high priest, and a perfectly holy sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, that brings us into God's presence and guarantees our future home, the inheritance of our heavenly city. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you for the countless promises and previews that look ahead and point forward to Jesus, our perfect high priest, our perfect sacrifice, who through his life, death, and resurrection has made a way for sinners like us to enjoy your presence, to be forgiven. We thank you, Jesus, that you took the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserve on the cross in our place. We thank you for your sacrifice, and I pray that we would be wholly set apart to you, Lord, that that would be our joyful response, that we would give of ourselves to you for your glory daily, that we would serve you with our whole hearts, Father, we thank you for pastors today. We thank you that you give us that gift of set-apart brothers called to proclaim your word and pray for us and exemplify holiness before us. Bless your pastors here, Father. Bless the men that you've called to serve this church pastorally. I pray for Dave and Aaron and Paul and myself. Help us to keep a close watch on our life and the teaching to persist in this. Help us to care deeply to shepherd well the flock that you've entrusted into our care. And may we do this with joy and not with groaning. So, Father, we love you. We give you this time and pray that you would sanctify it for our holiness and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.